Well, Lord, we ask you now as we <clears throat> break this loaf of bread that you would speak it into our lives, all that you're saying to the church today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now, by way of memory, it finally came, came clear where Saul was not going to change his mind. His paranoia had gone just insane. He believed David was trying to kill him, over, overtake him, and throw him off the throne. And, and he, you couldn't change his mind. And Jonathan saw David for the last time and said, you got to go. you got to flee for your life. And um, cannot help you. <clears throat> and David just sort of didn't have a plan, but he was just overcome with fear. And as he was taking off, he thought, well, I'll go to where the tabernacle is. At this time, it was on a hill. They sort of built a, a city of tents around the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle itself was in a tent at that time. And um, it was a hill called Nob, where the priests that would govern over the temple were living in that area, some in other parts of Jerusalem, but the, the majority of them are right there. And uh, David comes up and he says, hey, um, I got a whole bunch of guys with me here and they need some bread. Can you, uh... and it was a lie. David was by himself. And they said, well, we just have the table of showbread for the priest, but they're getting ready to get out, get rid of the old bread. I could give that to you. So he took that. Well, do you have any weapons? And he said, well, the only weapon we got is the sword of Goliath. Well, I'll take that. And for some crazy reason, David thought he would be accepted in the city of Gath, the Philistine city, with Goliath's sword on his back. He's not thinking very good. He gets there and he realizes, these guys want to kill me. And they throw him in jail, we learn in the Psalms. And then he acts like a crazy man. The man that was so honorable and noble. They had called him a warrior and a man of valor, a man of integrity, a man of renown. He's slobbering like a madman to try to convince them if you kill David, you're not really killing David, you're killing a guy out of his mind. There's no satisfaction in that revenge. Just get him out of here. And, and he went to a cave called Adullam. And that's as you leave Gath and you're heading towards Bethlehem, not too far from the Elah Valley where he had killed Goliath, is this uh, city of Adullam, but also there is a cave there. And I, I got a map and I can show you there, right there in the middle. And you can see up to the far, my far right up there, you can see Jerusalem and then come down Bethlehem. And then to the far left, you can see Gath, my left, your right. Uh, and you can see it out there in the middle of nowhere. Now, what this actually was at this time was sort of no man's land. It was on the border of what the Philistines thought land they owned. And it was on the border of what Israel thought they owned. And so it wasn't safe for an Israeli to go in that area. And it wasn't safe for a Philistine to go in that area. Because they both claimed it as their land. So it was sort of just an uninhabited sector at that time. And, uh, of course, the Philistines would fight back and forth to claim it and, and with Israel as well. But uh, David was thinking, yeah, I, I can sort of, I'm sort of in no man's land here, uh, why I'm here. So we find in chapter 22, verse 1, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented. In the Hebrew, I like it in one translation, translates it this way. Um, sorrowful or bitter of soul, excuse me, bitter of soul. I like that. People that were distressed, people that were in debt, people that were bitter of soul gathered to him. So he became the captive, the captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. And of course, in time, we knew that that would grow to 600 men, plus their wives, plus their kids, all staying with David in various places, uh, fleeing from Saul. What a stressful time that would have been. But of course, you know, most of the Psalms we have is from David in a difficult place, imprisoned in Gath or being chased by Saul or in a cave. And so just, just so if some skeptic ever says, well, we can't trust the Bible, it doesn't talk about cavemen. You can say, oh, yes, it does talk about cavemen. <laughs> Absolutely. We they do have cavemen. But here's what he's getting. I mean, you think about who is David right now? <laughs> is David distressed? Did David just lose everything and have nothing? Was David bitter of soul? <laughs> was he just, just dissatisfied and just troubled in his spirit about all the things going on with his family, with his country, with not a real clear future planned out in front of him? Sort of in a, a waiting pattern of, of, I can't go backwards, I can't fall forwards. There's nothing I could do if I became a farmer and built a crop. Saul's going to find out and come and kill me. I, I, I really, I can't go anywhere. And that's where these group of men were. They were sort of stuck. If they tried to get a job, they'd be found out and be thrown in debtor's prison. These people probably were on the wrong side of the political situation of the day. Saul was crazy and out of control. And as we'll find in this chapter, the people under him were just trying to figure out how to get their payday in the midst of this regime. And so there are these people going, well, I, I can't fit into Saul's world. And I'm just sort of in my own place trying to wait for something to happen to, to change and give me a future. And they hear David is in the same place. And so they go down there, and what do they find in David? They find this kindred heart. And David became the captive over them. And you say, oh, great. What a step down. He was the number one general of the armies of Israel, living in the palace with King Saul as his son-in-law, with the beautiful daughter of Saul. And, and, and he was in this royal lifestyle. And now he's a king over a bunch of in-debt, distressed, discontented guys. Isn't that how God always does it? Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, it says this. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it's written, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. So David got these bunch of miserable, unskilled, probably rebellious, not very submissive, not very teachable group of guys and we get to 2 Samuel 23, and it's a list of these mighty men of valor. I think of those Psalms where David's crying out, Lord, train my hands for war. And God did that. God answered that prayer. These guys that had really probably no skills with them, it tells us later that they were running like gazelles. That when you would face off them, face off with them in battle, their faces were like a face of a lion. That these guys became men, these 400, later 600 men, could take on entire nations and win. God takes the weak and makes what? The mighty. <laughs> This is what God is doing. He's not taking the weak and we fumble around and, you know, 20 years later as a Christian, we're still weak. No, we become the honorable. We become the honest. We become those who are speaking the truth, not slandering and gossiping. And we come, become those who are knowledgeable of God and his word. And, and we become skilled <laughs> in knowing the heart and the mind of God to proclaim it to the world around us. Now you say, well, what, what was it that all of these men that came found a home in David? You know, that's just very rare because you're always going to come into a group of people. I mean, we're going to have a new pastor here in a few months. And there's going to always be a percentage of people saying, yeah, not my cup of tea. Right? I mean, what are the odds of that? Anybody want to bet? I'm not a betting man. I've never bet. But I, I'm just saying that it's just, that's, people are fickle. And it's just, it's just, but with David, they all found a home. And you say, well, it's because greater, David was a strong leader. David was, what was it? The Bible tells us. In Isaiah 55, just sort of describing this scene but also describing the Messiah and talking about how these people that were in debt and discontent and in distress came unto David, so we in the same way would one day come unto the Messiah. And interesting, it says in Isaiah 55, verse 1, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, those in debt, Come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. 
Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. Now listen here. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader, a commander of the people. And it goes on, boy, all the way down to verse 13, powerful stuff. You might want to look at this verse too. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 36. David is proclaiming what God had done in his life. And it says this in 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-six: You have given me the shield of your salvation. And what? Your gentleness. 2 Samuel twenty-two thirty-six: Your gentleness has made me great. Or one translation translates it this way. Mercies, your mercies have made me great. It's the same sense in the Hebrew. So Isaiah 55 says, all you who are weary, all you who are in debt, all you who are distressed, all of you who are bitter of soul, come now unto the Messiah. And what will you receive? (laughs) The sure mercies of David. The mercies that I'm going to proclaim forever and ever and ever. As we've talked about, Jesus is going to sit for all of eternity upon a man's throne, that of David. It's just mind-boggling because we know David was no saint. David was a sinner. David was a man with a nature like ours. But yet there was something so profound in David's life, that there's more scripture written of David than any other man in the Bible. There's something in David that that Jesus said, out of all the men that have ever lived on the planet, David got it. He was the man after my own heart. And here are these guys coming. And what is it they're all sitting under his command? Why is it they're making him the captain over them? Because his mercies, his gentleness had made him great in their eyes. Do we we get this? David was right there. He was distressed. David was in debt, if you would. David was bitter of soul. He was a broken man and God was comforting him. God was strengthening him. We read those Psalms about how he just admits he blew it by going to the tabernacle and and getting Abathar and everybody killed and and blew it by going to Gath. He was just knee-jerk reaction out of fear and just doing these things out of the fear of man. And in those Psalms that we read when he wrote about that that experience, he just said, I got to fear God alone and not fear man. The Bible repeatedly says that, doesn't it? The fear of man is a snare. And he had learned, and this is why the Psalms are so dear to us, because David learned how to pour out his complaints to the Lord, his, his sorrows to the Lord, his difficulties to the Lord. He learned, and so we often can't find the words, can we? We can't find the exact heart of what we're trying to say when we're trying to pour out our distresses to the Lord. But yet, as we read those Psalms, we're going, oh, how healing. 
Oh, that's exactly it. And we begin praying the same songs that David sang, the same psalms that David prayed. And then we find in Jesus, Matthew 11, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Why? You'll find a rest for your souls. Why? Because I am gentle, merciful, lowly, humble, gentle of heart. And in my presence, you can find a rest for your souls. These men found David a merciful guy, a kind person. I mean, just think about it, guys. I mean, isn't that really just what you want? I, I was going to teach on it this morning, but I don't think we have time. But in 1 Corinthians 13, if you go through that, it says love is kind. And then it gives you a list of all things that are not kind. And it gives you a whole list of things that aren't kind. In essence, love is always revealed in kindness. And you know what? That's, that's, I'm pretty much happy with that. People being kind, you can sort of forget about everything else, whatever love may be. Just kindness. And I think that's what they got in David. They came and go, man, I'm in distress. David's like, you and me both, brother. <laughs> Come on over here, man. You, I know, I know what it was like when my heart, I was running to the tabernacle. I, I want to find a place. But Lord, you are my shield and my salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. I know what I wanted from King Gath when he came to me. I just wanted this guy to say, I love my enemies. <laughs> I'll be kind to you, David. And let's see what God might do with you here in the land of the Philistines. I really had sort of thought I might receive some gentleness and kindness from one royal family to another. He got none. And he knows what these guys want because he himself is craving it. And he's saying, come on in here. Well, heading on in verse three here, then David went from there to Mizpah and Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do with me. Now you say, Moab, why would he go down to a different country, Moab? Well, it's really simple. If you go back, remember David's great-great-grandmother was Ruth, the book of Ruth. And that's the, the book where this amazing Moabitess woman walks in faith and ends up marrying into sort of a royalty of Israel. And they had a child by the name of Obed, and Obed had a child of Jesse, and Jesse had his son David. And so interesting that the Messiah doesn't come from this beautiful, perfect lineage. He comes from a rather spotty lineage. Interesting, if you want to see a neat Bible study in Matthew 1, look at the four women of the genealogy. One by incest, one of them was a prostitute, one of them was a Moabitess. It's interesting. It's an interesting study that then you come to the lineage of Jesus and so, if you would, the family kept in contact, even though they were living in a separate country. So David knew 
his Moabite relatives. And, and he says, look, Saul's throwing spears at his own son. Believe me, he's going to be throwing, you know, if my, my brother-in-law gets a spear thrown at him, my brothers are for sure going to get a spear thrown at him. <laughs> if uh, Saul's not sparing anybody, he's not going to spare my family. Anybody even pretends to side with me, they're dead. So I got to get my family out of there. Interesting that, as we know, David's family really didn't honor him. But yet it doesn't stop David from honoring his father and mother. Well, in verse 4, so he brought them before the king Moab, and they dwelt with him all that time, and David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. We're not sure where that is, but it's in the land of Judah. So here's one of the prophets that was in David's life. Gad and the other prophet was Nathan and the other prophet was Samuel. And um, it's interesting. We'll see Gad one more time when David sins by counting his armies when he wasn't supposed to. And then uh, it also mentions that these three prophets all had written various books. Uh, even though we don't have the book of Gad, some believe that parts of First and Second Samuel are actually written by Gad. But uh, he was a prophet of God, not a lot on him, but yet we do see that there is a lot to learn once we get to heaven and, uh, and, and meet these guys that were amazing in the sight of God, but yet not written much on in the Bible. Well, in chapter 22, now verse 6, all the way to verse 19. So Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was staying in Gibeah under the Tamarast tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, that's his tribe, will you son of Jesse Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make all of you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me. There's not one of you who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie to wait as it is this day. So we get from those couple of verses there a clear picture of Saul. He's sitting up under a Tamaras tree like he's sitting on a throne. He doesn't have a scepter in his hand. He has a spear because he's throwing that thing all the time. <laughs> his son-in-law, his son, anybody that looks at him cross-sided. And what's he doing sitting there thinking about the kingdom? He's just thinking about himself. He's consumed that people don't appreciate him more and love him more and are more loyal to him. I've made you captains. I've given you lands. I've made you all rich. And what are you doing? You've not been loyal to me. You guys have, and he's like, me, my hurt, my, my, me, my, just consumed with himself. You know, if you want to have one thought that'll make your journey on planet Earth fruitful. Here it is. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on the Lord. And, and then put everybody's interest before your own interest. Think of everybody as better than yourself. 
Submit one to another in the fear of God. Love one another as you would want to be loved. It's simple. Just if your eyes are on yourself, it's a cancer, guys. Not a physical cancer, but it's a spiritual cancer. Because the more you consume on yourself, guess what? The more you consume on yourself. The more you start feeling sorry for yourself, you're going to keep feeling sorry for yourself. And it is a, a tornado that is going to destroy you and everybody around you. And so we're beginning to see the contrast. David is not in his flesh claiming anything, even though he was already anointed as king. Saul, God's hand is off his life. God put Saul on the throne. He didn't even think about it. When they came and tried to get Saul to be king, he was hiding. He, he was like, no, no, I'm, I'm not your guy. I'm not worthy. But now God is not with Saul. Saul has been wicked and offering a sacrifice only the priests were to offer. And then he completely disobeyed God when he was supposed to kill the Malachites and didn't do it. And he says, let me tell you, it may not be visibly out here where everybody can see it, Saul, but underneath, rebellion, that's what it is, is as witchcraft. Stubbornness is idolatry. Everybody in the kingdom can't see what's going on, but God sees it. And your heart is so evilly rebellious against God and not submitted to him. Outwardly, everybody thinks, oh, he's this wonderful, godly guy. He even prophesies after that offense. And, oh, there's Saul's amongst the prophets. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? <laughs> Saul will be one of them. I prophesied in your name even after you took the kingdom away from me. Even after I ripped Samuel's garment and you said, now the kingdom's ripped from you. After that, Saul prophesied. What? What's going on here? But God looks on, on the outward man. God looks on the heart. And we start to begin to see the contrast. David's not fighting to make everybody recognize his authority and his kingship at all. But Saul doesn't have faith in God. He doesn't have God supporting him. It's 100% on him to keep his position and fight for his position. It's, it's hard. It's a, it's a hard life not having the power of God's spirit, not having the leading and the feeling of God's spirit, and to be able to trust in God to take care of the A to Z. Well, in verse 9, and he answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob and Ahimelech, the son of Hytub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to Ahimelech, the priest and the son of Hytub and all his father's house and priests who were of Nob and they all came to the king. And Saul said, here now, you sons of Hytub. He answered, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and you have given him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him that he should be rise up against me to, die, to lie in wait as it is this day? And Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Oh, not a good thing to say. <laughs> who is the king's son-in-law? How goes on your bidding and is honorable in your house? Hey, I just know what everybody in the country knows. I don't know about the soap opera going on in the castle. 
Nobody does. We don't know all those inner squabbles and power shifts and unhappiness. Of We, we have no idea. All we know is, is what everybody knows, that David is this amazing guy under you in your kingdom. He's your son. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. I didn't do that. You're saying that I came and it's like praying for David, God to bless him against Saul and give him wisdom against Saul. Didn't happen. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of this, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Wow. Talking about guilt by association. <laughs> then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. He knew that word Lord is capitalized L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the holy name of God. Because their hand also was with David, and because they knew he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Those that inner bodyguard that would were Saul's hitmen and do whatever Saul wanted, they wouldn't cross this line. But then the king said to Doag, Remember, we saw him in the last chapter, happened to see David, and he's the one, and he knew he was a vile guy, this Edomite. This uh, of the lineage of Esau, those Edomites who hated Israel. You turn and kill the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed that day 85 men who were in a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkey, sheep with the edge of the sword. Total slaughter. Hang on here with me a minute. Now, this is, this is pretty amazing as we're getting a clear picture of a leader who's leading out of the strength of his flesh and, and leading for his own reasons, not for the glory of God. Now, you remember earlier, back in chapter 15, the story where God says, remember way back, starting really in Genesis 15, but for sure in the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel were fleeing from Israel, or fleeing from Egypt, and the Amalekites were just sleazy guys. They just started picking off the outskirts, the weak, the weary, the half-hearted, and they tried to ignore them, and, and finally... They had to stop. And he said to these Egyptians who have never handled a sword or a spear, were never allowed to be anything like warriors for oh, the 430 years they were slaves. And he said to them, we got to fight. You remember that story? And, and Moses keeps his hands up. While his hands are up, they win. When his hand comes down, they start to lose. So Moses had to keep his hands up. And they had a battle against the Malachites, but didn't wipe them out. But at the end of that story... God says the Malachites are going to be around from generation to generation, but there's going to be a day. I'm giving them time to repent, but there's going to be a day that I'm going to judge them for what they did here and for all their other abominations. Well, that day came after Israel had a king. It didn't happen in the time of the judges. It didn't happen in the time of the prophets. But now it did happen when Israel got a king. God now speaks and says, 
It's time to judge. We've given them generations to repent, and they've only become more wicked. But Saul, go down and wipe out every man, every woman, every child, every animal. Kill everything. This is, this is like fire coming out of heaven, consuming Sodom and Gomorrah. But I'm not doing it with that. I'm doing it with the armies of Israel. And remember, Saul went down there, and he kept all these animals alive, everything that was the best for himself. And he even brought back, not just people, but he brought the king himself back as a trophy. And Samuel says, what have you done? Oh, praise the Lord, I did everything God wanted me to do. He said, why do I hear the sheep? Why am I looking at the king? And that's when they, they had that, that difficult time. But, but Saul is like, I obeyed close enough. There is a heart of judgment, and it felt like we judged him. In, 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 in essence, he's like, you know, I'm just not that kind of guy. God's going to have to look for somebody else if he wants to find somebody like that to go wipe everybody out. But now we see this here. <laughs> what Saul would not do for God, what Saul would not do for the glory of God, Saul would do for himself. Saul would do because he felt disrespected out of his paranoia. Not a wicked country that had hundreds of years to repent, but the actual priest of God wiped out not only the priest, but all their family, all the way down to their infants and all of their animals. There he did it for himself. Do, do we, are we starting to see the difference here? And this is where David, more than once as a king, would cry out and say, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. I know there's some Saul in me. I know there's seasons I go through and I'm consuming of myself. Poor me, poor me, poor me. And, 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 and I start do fleshly things. I, I, I'm not walking in faith. I'm not reading the word like he says a king was to do every day. And he was weak in faith. And, and, and he would not having the word of God as his light, he would make horrible decisions. We're going to see later on where he wants to move the ark and he builds a cart and puts it on the, the cart. But, you know, it's so crazy clear in the scriptures. There is a portion of how to move the ark and who could do it and how to do it. I mean, it's like a whole chapter on how to move the ark. And David was supposed to, the day he became king, read all the scriptures repeatedly. And by this time, he had been the king for decades. A portion of scripture he should know inside out, but he had no knowledge of it. And a very godly man by the name of Uzziah died because he just didn't know the Bible. Hosea says, basically what we do in our judicial system, the ignorance of the law is no excuse. God says that there in Hosea, that because Israel lacked knowledge, they were destroyed. We got to study to show ourselves to prove a workman unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. David would say, Lord, am I being a Saul? We all should be doing that. Am I willing to, to serve for something for myself where I can get back to myself? Remember, Jesus said this over and over again in the Gospels. Don't go throw a party for those who throw parties for you, so you'll get invited to their parties later on. He said, 
You go throw a party for the homeless, for the poor, for the diseased, for people that can never do one thing for you, ever. Now you're walking in my kingdom principles. But Saul could not have the heart of God. We all need to come to hate what God hates, the degree he hates it. And we all need to come to love what God loves to the degree he loves it. And if we don't have that right, we will become a selfish, consumed person because it's not about what God hates. It's what I hate to the degree I hate it. It's what I love and to the degree it fulfills my fleshly wants and needs and desires. That's how I want to love. No, God said, Saul, gear your heart, gear your mind. I want you to have the same heart of hatred towards these Amalekites and what they did as I do. Saul's like, I'm quite unwilling to do that. But now, uh, for his own selfish, consumed reasons, he kills the priest of God through an Edomite, this wicked man, Doag, that he had now surrounded himself with these type of men. However, hang in there with me. This, the nuances are really interesting. Remember way back, Samuel was raised by a guy by the name of Eli. Do you remember that story? Hannah said, I can't have any kids. And God, she says, God, if you give me a kid, I'll give him to you. And he, she bore Samuel. And so when Samuel was a little boy, she took him and gave him to the priest, Eli, and said, you can raise him. He's yours. So Samuel, they gave him a little priest outfit, and he's running around as a toddler, looking like a little priest. But Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were wicked guys. They were having sex with the women that came to worship God. They were, instead of taking a small portion of the meat to eat in the fellowship sacrifice, they were just taking all the meat they want. And they were just big, huge guys. Eli was like 400 pounds. He fell out of a chair and died. And, um, and Eli, over and over again, was told, fire your sons. <laughs> Disqualify them. They are not to be priests. They're not worthy. And nepotism, man, that'll, that'll mess you up. But he couldn't. He couldn't. They were his sons. The real reason was he, they didn't respect him because he wasn't a very godly man. So after all this happened for decades and decades, God said, Eli, I'm going to remember this. And when my timing comes, I'm bringing judgment on you and your sons and their sons in my timing. Interesting. It was now. 1 Samuel 2.33. But any of your men whom you do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Saul, <laughs> indirectly with no knowledge of himself, now brought judgment on the house of Eli as God had prophesied he would. Interesting, isn't it? Saul was a guy that God had, he said, he said this plainly in 1 Samuel 14, I had decided to raise up your kingdom, Saul, forever. Yours was a forever kingdom. But now that you've done these things, I'm taking it away from you and giving it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
I look at the glory that could have been Saul's. I raised Saul up. I gave you power. You conquered the enemies. Now you're going to be the, the throne, on the throne in my place as my royal scepter. And I am telling you as king to bring judgment now upon the Malachites after hundreds of years. After decades have gone by, I'm now telling you to bring judgment upon Eli's house. But he couldn't say that to Saul because Saul probably wouldn't have done it. So just stop for a moment and just try to, you know, who knows the mind of the Lord that we can instruct him. But Saul, <laughs> it says in Proverbs that the heart of the king is in the hand of God and he turns it like a river any way he chooses. And so all of this, we're looking at this going, what a horrible tragedy. And God is saying, I prophesied this <laughs> over 50 years earlier. This was my prophecy on this house of Eli and Saul, even though you are, wouldn't have done it for me, you would do it for yourself. And because God is so wise, you do understand what I'm saying? If you think you can play chess with God and win, you're nuts. <laughs> God knows our ways from the beginning to the end. God, it's not clear. The, the past is not clear to God. The present isn't less clear. The future isn't like God's out there going, mm. he sees it all exactly the same. And we see that God's got it in control. And if you're here today thinking, well, I got away with it, whatever it is, for a month or two or years or decade. Look, the Bible makes it clear. God is slow to anger. He doesn't wish to bring judgment upon anybody. When he said, okay, the world is so wicked, I'm going to destroy it with the flood. And he has this guy born. And he says, the day this guy dies is the day I'm going to bring the, the flood. Did that guy live 50 years? 70 years? He was the oldest living man on planet Earth. Methuselah, 969 years. The guy who lived the longest, in essence, is saying, God is saying, it's so not the way I want to be. And, you know, I'm just hanging in there that one more person will be saved. And then it starts getting ridiculous. Methuselah going, 900 years old? This is getting crazy. 950? It's like, we're starting to pay attention. The oldest man, a couple of years ago, was the oldest woman in America. It, this was 2016, and she was 117 years old. She was born in 1899. The only person, it just blows my mind. I mean, this guy, Methuselah, was an example of just how God doesn't want to judge. He wants to give opportunity to repent, but yet it didn't happen. And so we go to chapter 22 here. In verse 20, now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Itub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So Saul said to Abathar, I knew that day when Doag the Edomites were there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Listen, do not fear. Been there, done that. That's why your family's dead, is because I was walking in fear of man rather than the fear of God. That's why I went down to Gath and made a mess of things there, dishonoring God. 
And I'm telling you now, I can tell you're afraid. I can tell that you're fearful. But stop making decisions out of that. And he says, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me, you shall be safe. So don't walk in fear. That is nowhere in any case where you want to be. Well, in this portion of scripture, David writes in Psalm 52 about Doag and how he is greatly comforted that he can set the judgment on Doag in the hands of God. In that, in that story, everything about, in that Psalm 52, David wanted to go kill Doag so bad for being so wicked. And he's wrestling in that Psalm and finally he's released. He's able to say, you know, we know later in Romans, you know, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He was able to say, okay, God, you got it. It's yours. I give it to you. And then in Psalm 57, it's one of the Psalms that David wrote out of the cave. And he's just crying out, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, oh God. And he talks about how I just need you to take me in the shadow of your wings and be my refuge. And so we see that the comfort in which he was being comforted by God, he was able to have that same gentle, caring heart towards those men under him. And then in Psalm 142 is another psalm of David, powerful, powerful stuff when he was in the cave and the things that he had learned. So you may be in that place today. You may be in a distressed, discontented, in debt, or your heart may be bitter of soul, but this is it. It's God's mercies that'll make you great. It's to stop fearing, put your trust in him and live for the glory of God. Lord, we come before you now.